biology. I've always had a thing for biology, even as a kid. And I could tell you uh, lots of neat things, but the thing that is most neat to me, as far as this is an opinion, but is the process of, of metamorphosis. And in case you don't know, I'll share with you what this is. Science defines metamorphosis this way. A profound, okay, keyword, a profound and complete change in form, structure, and substance. So this pretty much means the whole of a being, whatever it is, the whole being. Uh, there's a complete change in the life history of an organism, uh, which is usually accompanied by a change of behavior and habitat. So the idea of metamorphosis is that from A to Z, a living being changes on the inside, the outside, and then it even changes what they do and where they go. Now, on one hand, this is an incredibly unique and complex scientific process. But on the other hand, we have the, the, the beautiful fortune of living in a place where we can observe this on a regular basis. In case you don't know, we all live in Florida, which is a place with some pretty great biology and ecology. We have one of the, the, the most abundant uh, state resources regarding wildlife and animals and all this great stuff. The ocean just being a few miles away from here. From here. And when my son was very young, we would constantly stumble across metamorphosis no matter where we were going especially if we were in a woody area or in our backyard and you can see this pretty normally especially as the rains begin to take place here and we move into our wet season when my son was young we'd regularly stumble across small pools of water that contained tadpoles which you all know do not remain tadpoles forever they undergo the process of metamorphosis they completely change over a period of time from these little you know dime-sized black dots with a tail into these small aquatic dwellers that we call frogs. They go from a small silent thing into an amphibious land dweller. And you know this because anytime it rains here, you likely have 10,000 of them chirping in your backyard. Every single time I hear it. They become an entirely new being in every single sense. Now, I want to revisit. Today is Palm Sunday, and Easter is just one week away. And in the spirit of really trying to celebrate Lent together, we have been moving through this series, kind of a series within a series in Philippians, spending some time reflecting on the role that Jesus' cross plays in our lives. Our drive this year has been to make Easter a season, not just a day. And the cross is central to the Easter story. So after, over these past weeks, we've learned some pretty important things about the cross. I promised you that each week we would basically fill in the blank on a statement like this. The cross shows us something. It always shows us something about who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And so over these past weeks, we've looked at some important themes. The cross shows that God wants us to be like him. This is the premise we read about in Ephesians uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, the, the verses we looked at in Ephesians and the verses that we read about in Philippians. Both of these show us that we have the ability not to be God, but to, to be like God. Okay, God wants us to become like him. This is the great process of sanctification. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God wants us to love others like him. And we really rooted into this because we basically said when God offers you the ability to become like him, this is an evidence of his fatherly love for you. God is saying, I am your father. You are my child. I want you to be like me, to reflect my image. And part of the way we reflect God's image is to reflect God's image into the places of the world that need it. So we talked about the central theme of love in the cross, how God's death for us, Jesus on the cross, is one of the greatest examples of his love for us. And today we press into that rhythm a little more deeply. Today is, or this is the week, where Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he begins his slow and painful journey to the cross. And what I want us to talk about today is how the cross shows us that God wants us to live in his light. 
So in tandem with Philippians 3.10, we're studying how the cross gives us the power to undergo the spiritual equivalent of metamorphosis. metamorphosis. In Ephesians 5.8, we read some very important things, but the passage is deeply concerned with helping us to understand what it means to become a Christian and to be converted to the grace of God from the realm of darkness and death. Paul uses this analogy. It is certainly an analogy found all throughout the Bible. Jesus uses it himself. He talks about this change from darkness to light. And this is a word or this this process, at least in the Christian faith, we call this conversion. Now, for those of you that maybe are new to a church or maybe you've been in a church for a long time, I don't know where you're coming from. I just want to stop here and issue a very brief but important caveat. The word conversion, much like many of the meaningful words in the Christian faith, uh, at times they can have a very bad rap in our culture. This is actually a very beautiful word in scripture. Uh, the idea anyways, but for some of us, it might not be a beautiful word because of the experiences we've had with it. Maybe we have people in our lives who uh, who would not be receptive to this idea because they've seen you know unhealthy or problematic conversions in the world, meaning uh, abusive paradigms of Christianity. So I guess I want to say that sometimes, for good reason, there could be people, maybe even you today, who have an issue with this word. However, it is my hope that through our teaching today, we'll see there's a good reason to use the word and to keep the word in our vocabulary. Some words really do need to be tossed out. Others need to be redeemed. And this is one of the words that I think the the meaning and the force behind it requires it to be redeemed. Because we're hard-pressed to find any other word that carries with it the force needed to describe the physical and spiritual transformation that is set in motion in our lives when we come to Jesus or when a person comes to Jesus and truly begins to recognize the cross. The cross starts to light stuff up in ways that were not lightable prior because God begins to speak to us through it. And so just like the tadpole, it's the beginning of a process that changes us from the inside out. Just like the tadpole or the process of metamorphosis, when it comes to us converting from darkness to light, Jesus' hand, his cross, leaves no area of our heart, soul, mind untouched. It sets in motion a metamorphosis that starts transforming us into the image of Jesus. And he is the ultimate source of light and life. We'll see that here at the back end of this uh, message this morning. Jesus self-refers to himself as the light, as our light. So in these verses, much like the ones we have studied, we get a new layer. new layer into what God wants us to be like when when we talk about becoming like him. Here the scripture calls us to become like God. By living as children of light. We've already talked about what it means to be a child of God. Here there's another layer. And the layer is that as children of God, we should be his light. We should live in the light. And he points out these two marks of conversion that should be evident in a person as they begin the journey from the darkness to the light. And this leads me to the first cross truth I want to share with you today. The cross shows us that to be a person who lives in the light, you must first understand what the darkness is. That's where it begins. You have to have, to have a remedial understanding of both these ideas. And Ephesians 5.8 gives us this, this sharp contrast. Keep in mind, Paul re-evokes this imagery of the word child, a word we've studied at length here over these weeks. Ephesians 5.8, Paul tells us this, For you were once darkness, but you, now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of the light. Now, it's fair to say that you and I will never fully appreciate the light of the cross until you and I know what we're missing by living in the darkness. And many of the richest Christian truths are like this. You cannot appreciate the cross of Christ until you understand sin. That's why Jesus went to the cross. You cannot fully appreciate grace until you understand judgment, right? 
the, these two terms together provide a balance. When we recognize what God can do and what he chooses to do, he could judge us, but in Jesus, he provides us grace. It powerfully redefines these words. When it comes to the paradigm of darkness and light, the same, the same thing is present here. And unlike some of those other words that I just talked about, we actually have, I would say, a, an elevated or a unique advantage in the way we understand this. We live in a world where people, some people don't believe in grace. Some people don't believe in judgment. We live in a world where some people don't believe in sin or the cross. Those are words that require a little bit of an additional understanding. But we do live in a world where everybody knows there is such a thing as light and darkness. And so the accessibility for this metaphor is very real for us. And that's why it's important that we kind of bury and root into it. The darkness and the light are all around us. In this room right now, there are evidence of dark, evidences of darkness and light. The light is obviously overcoming the darkness, but there is still an element of it in here. In fact, in this room, we fight, unlike the average church, we fight to bring light to this room. Most churches are trying to figure out how to keep it out. This is a perfect example of what I mean. The natural effects of, of darkness and light are in our lives every day. And i give you a couple of examples of this. So I can remember as a very small child, riding the New York City trains with my father. I would, you know, there was a point where I was not allowed to be in them on my own, but I can remember riding trains with my dad. And I don't know if you've ever seen like any really, typically any film made in the 80s except for Top Gun. It's going to be a very lame movie, all right? But anytime they are present in, a, I know, a, like some of you don't even know what that movie is because you're under 30, but you should Google it. That's all I'm saying. Uh, the 80s was like the, they were notorious for terrible movies. They just were like not realistic and poor. But there's one scene you'll almost always see in like a crime or detective type film uh, from the 80s. If it's, if it's in New York, a lot of bad stuff happens on the train systems. And that's for good reason. They were actually very, very, very rough then. But one of the things that contributed to that roughness, watch the movies and see if I'm making this up, is that there were times when you were riding on a city train where the lights would go out. You, there, there was some, I don't know what caused it, I'm not an electrician, but there were, there were times where you would go through tunnels or you could hear like the wheels grinding on tracks and for anywhere from 5 to 30 seconds, lights would flicker and sometimes they would completely black out. They would just sporadically go out of points. And I could tell you as a small kid, uh, those moments in the darkness were always somewhat terrifying because for a few brief moments, you, you lose your bearings. You're in a moving object, right? It's pitch black. There's tons of noise going on around you. You have no idea what is going on around you. You don't know where the train is heading. You don't know what the people sitting next to you might or might not do. Chances are probably nothing, but in the dark, stuff starts changing. Your biggest fear was when they were going to turn back on, right? That's what we're sitting here thinking all the time. So you hold your wallet, you grab your keys, you make sure you're good to go. Fighting posture, lights come on, you're good to go. Now, thankfully, that is a fixed problem. I have not been on a train recently or seen a movie where they black out. Whatever that issue was, they, they fixed it when they cleaned up that whole system. But the point I'm making here is that uh, a story like this really shows us that the darkness has an effect on life. This is a great example of what the darkness does. It tends to rob you of things you need. It robs you of peace and the promises of the light that God provides you. When the, the lights go out in life we often get a little bit anxious. And that is because the darkness tends to distort reality. And in this passage, and the ones we've been looking at, the cross itself, these are truths God has given us to define a certain reality. He is lighting up a path and saying, this is the way things are meant to be. Look at me and I'm going to show you the, th the way things are meant to be. When we choose a path different than the light, what happens is we choose to dwell in the darkness. 
And that often robs us of a great many things in life. The peace and the confidence being the biggest one. The peace and the confidence that the light brings us. Because oftentimes the darkness creates in us a fear of the unknown. It makes little things seem a lot bigger. You know, kids have fears in their bedroom when the closet doors are open or the lights are out. The normal world around them starts to get very scary in the dark. Because it makes us unsure oftentimes. And, and that, that lack of certainty can oftentimes lead us to an incredibly draining anxiety. People, both in the spiritual world as we're talking about today, and even in the physical world, have long had a primeval fear of the darkness, and for good reason. Because at the origin of people as we know it, God created people to, create, to, to live in hope and security. God created us to live in the light. And I'll give you another example here. Okay? Last year, we had this thing called Hurricane Matthew. Remember that whole ordeal? Hurricane Matthew comes through. And for a great many of us, it meant that we lost power and lights for days, and some of us even for weeks. And when that happened, none of us celebrated, right? Even here, a lot of ministry went on. We were caring for our people. We were trying to figure out what was going on. Folks were without electricity. The, this, the reality of the power going out and losing these, these essential amenities in life show us that none, none of you, right? You, what did you do when the, when the power went out? The first thing you did is you called FPL and reported a power outage. You immediately said, hey, the power's out. What are we going to do to fix this? None of you called and said, hey, listen, the power's out, and we're good with this. Let's keep it off for a couple more weeks. We like it. You most likely took this to another step. While you were waiting for this stuff to get fixed, you probably had those baseball-sized flashlights, bags of emergency candles. You have all this stuff that brings a temporary light until the real light comes back. We do this because we want to live in the light. We were created to live in the light in the most sensational and mundane ways. And this is why Paul uses this light-darkness metaphor to describe a much deeper Christian reality. Now, if you're like me, you have a logic question right now. What is that reality he's talking about? Let's go there for a few minutes. In the scripture, darkness is regularly used to describe the sinful and fallen, you might even say wandering state, of people who are very far from God. It signifies an inability to find the right path. That's what darkness is talking about. And in the Christian worldview, the right path is the one that God illuminates. And so by fallen, we simply mean the darkened worldviews people have adopted that are opposed to the well-lit and beautiful way God intended the world to be before the fall. We have a whole talk on sin and righteousness about four weeks ago. So we're not going to belabor that today, but know that this is a, it's a bit of a sequential teaching. I'm not just dropping these terms. A lot of what we're talking about today has been elaborated on already. It signifies the fact that there's a way God desires us to live. And Scripture teaches us there are two systems competing for our lives on a daily basis. There are two paths, you might say. One is the darkened nature of the things that seek to take us away from God. The other is the path of the cross of Christ. And it shines a light. God shines a light on that after we come to Jesus. So we have these two paths in front of us at all times. I want to take a moment to talk about the path of darkness for a few moments. As we talk about this, it's important to point out a common misconception people have regarding words like sin, uh, fallenness, living in the darkness, far from God, which often tends to keep them from experiencing the light of Jesus. And at times it might even keep us from sharing the light of Jesus. You see, some people think, and you might even have been this person at one point in your life, some people think that when Scripture talks about sin and darkness, it's saying or identifying that all people without Jesus are bad people and have no desire to do any good in our world. Now, that can be true at times, obviously, but for a great many people, that is simply not true. And for those people, they are somewhat naturally offended by that. And maybe even for us, we're naturally unburdened for that when we see it. 
This is why a great many people, when asked to place their faith in Jesus, will say things like, well, I don't really need that because I'm a good person. You're talking about sin and fallenness and all these problems. And they're like, well, you know my, what? My life's pretty good. I got a decent family and all right job. I help my neighbor when they need it. And I don't see a need for this guy you call a savior. For some people, this is a true statement. They are generally good people. They will not break into your house. They will not steal your car. They will not take your keys when the, trains go, the train lights go out. They won't do that. For many people, this just isn't true, and they are offended by it. However, there is a, a, a light truth that has to be applied to this. They don't see a need for help in their lives. And for some of us in Jesus, even when we come to the light, we can drift into this paradigm too. It's called pride or arrogance, right? Even if a person far from God doesn't see a need for Jesus' light, or those of us who have the light, we have a waning desire for it, the truth is, according to Jesus, we all still need his light. This is a righteousness issue, which we've already talked about. It's a matter of where you find your righteousness. And the reason why you know, a really good, great person can be very far from God is because God declares that it is not our goodness that, that merits his love. It is God's love that merits his love for us. It is God's goodness in us that creates an ability for him to love us. And that covers a multitude of gaps, even in the greatest of people on earth. Because we all have our issues and layers of the darkness. That's the problem with uh, I'm a good person. It's the problem with uh, I'm a Christian, but life is you know, perfect and I have no need for Jesus. There are always gaps in the darkness. Always. This is why we grow in Christ. The problem is how do we deal with the gap? It's understanding where Jesus' righteousness is in your life. So this is a righteousness issue. And this is why we must point out in a teaching like this, Paul is addressing a more common but subtle way the majority of people choose to live in the darkness. Not all people, but a great majority of them. It's the kind of darkness that we will more likely face as we seek to love others like Jesus first loved us. Most of us will deal with the kind of darkness that exists in a generally good person. The kind that robs a person of peace, of hope, and of joy. It's the kind of darkness that robs a person from experiencing the fullness of life God has created them for. And it's likely the people we deal with might even lead good lives. But that person leading a good life can actually still be disconnected from the light of Jesus. And this is what we have to look out for here. This is what I'm talking about when I say we have to be careful to not relegate the need for light to other people. We always need the light because there's always the next step on the path to Jesus. Whether that's in our own lives or the people we're sharing Christ with, we have to be mindful of the fact that wherever there is a lightless area in our life, it, there is very likely a distortion of the way we begin to understand the way God wants things to be. I'll give you an example of this. So I read a lot of stuff um, just because I feel like it's important to be up on things. And if you turn the news on for 10 minutes, you'll see the, the absence of light in a great many areas of the world. But some of those things are somewhat sensational for us. Like we might be disconnected from what's going on in Syria right now. Uh, maybe you don't even know, or maybe you do. But the bottom line is, you know, chemical bombs being dropped on women and children in another part of the world tugs at our heartstrings. But by God's grace in this country, we have been, you know, this is not an issue we deal with. So this is what I'm saying here is that sometimes this lightlessness is very major, very major for people around the world. But we live in a fairly stable society where things are relatively okay. And so we can forget that we have the same challenges that people around the world have. So, for example, recently I read an interesting article. Uh, this was a sociology I talked about years ago called FOMO, the fear of missing out. And it's interesting watching how this teaching, uh, this, this science, if you will, has been unpacked. It's actually becoming more prevalent in the writing of a great many people. 
And the this idea in this article I read was talking about a whole new generation. And keep in mind that generation is not just limited to a particular age group. It's talking about the way the world is changing when it comes to the way people make decisions in the Western world. It was a fascinating article that pointed out and challenged what has become for one of the greatest threats facing our culture. And remember, culture and the Christian live in the same, we live in the same place, on the same planet. So oftentimes, culture can overly affect the Christian, or the Christian can overly be under-concerned with culture. This is a place where we're seeing some blurriness here. And the article pointed out that there's been a seismic shift in the way that people make decisions today. Mainly, that a great many people are apprehensive to make committed decisions at all, large or small, because they are guided by two deeply destructive and closely connected principles. And if you think I'm kidding about this, just watch some of the modern marketing that we have on television today. Marketing always, always portrays a cultural reality. And a great, a great volume of marketing today seems to be encouraging what looks to be like a prolonged irresponsibility at times. And it's because it's kind of a good way to make money, right? You can sell this stuff because it's an idea people are embracing. The first of these two principles that the, the article identified was this. Because people are so inundated with choices today. I mean, think about this. Just think about the volume of choices you had to make when you got up this morning. Should I get up? Should I go to worship? Should I go out to eat afterwards? Should I eat at home? Right? Uh, am I going to listen to what he's even saying in the front of the room? You have a million choices. After this, you'll make a million more. I really want to go to Five Guys, but my cholesterol's high. So I should get a salad at San Diego Grill, but that's not a hamburger. Right? We have a million options every moment of the day. And so for some people, they start living in this paralysis. We have so many choices. Some of you are making them on Facebook right now, right? On your phone. We have so many choices in front of us at all moments of the day that people, uh, they either erratically respond or they just break and they stop responding. And the article was pointing out how some people are just weighed down by this and the, the problem starts to affect every decision they make in life. It even pointed out silly things like what types of genes I buy, to what college they will go to, whether or not they'll commit to a career, a spouse, or a church family. The list goes on. Too many choices. Second principle, fueling the first, actually has a sociological con uh, con uh, term connected to it. The FOMO, the fear of missing out. And this is something I have talked about here before. This is when a person, because of all those decisions and options they have in life, they are guided by this constant feeling that if they decide to do this, they cannot do this. And I see this with my children a lot. It's, it's amazing how we're hardwired for this. Like, I'll talk to my son, and he wants to do everything. And I'm like, well, you can't do everything. Like, you have an option to do this or this. So if you're doing everything, you really do nothing. And what happens is, for a great many people, they kind of realize that. And they just stop doing anything. That would sound like a Dr. Seuss riddle. But the truth is that they get to this place where they are so afraid to make a serious commitment in life because they know it's going to rob them from another thing. At least that's the way they feel. And that is a problem. And what that tends to breed over time is, I'll do this so long as something better doesn't come up. And I'll only do this if it's the this that I can actually back out of in order to be able to oblige the better thing that comes up. It creates a culture of uncommittedness, a culture of laziness. It creates a culture of advantaging self at the expense of your neighbor. And man, can you imagine if this was the gospel that Jesus spoke to us? There was nothing convenient about what the cross does or what he does on the cross for us. He makes a commitment to us knowing full and well there are better options for him. This was the worst option for him, but the best one for us. Right? Thank you. You too. <laughs> the article goes on to say, all, all you other people are like Buddhists or something, I don't know. But the article 
goes on to say, right? These principles have created a culture of people who can't commit to doing something with you on Friday, a ministry in the church, a confident choice about who they'll marry, what kind of vocation they'll go into. There is a healthy idea behind this. I'll touch on this in a moment. We're not encouraging erratic decisions, but we're just saying you don't want to fall prey to this type of darkness. The subtleties of the darkness. These are pervasive forms of darkness plaguing the modern Christian. And they will rob you of the hope and confidence the light of Christ brings you. So I repeat, this article, nor am I, I'm not arguing that you should be careless or thoughtless in the way you make decisions. It's just saying, boy, it's a problem when you think about, let's get to the Christian worldview now, what God says about our choices and decisions and wisdom and the, great way, the, the way a great many Christians make or don't make decisions. This article was seeking to remind us as believers that this epidemic is rooted in God's people lacking the light. It's a place where there is an absence of light in an area of life. And when it comes to their ability to make wise decisions and live a committed life of progress, it's a little shadowy at times. What happens here is when you function like this, when you walk away from the light in this particular area, decisions, it is very likely you will start drowning in anxiety, the fear of missing out, apprehension. In fact, at some point, you know the noose of life tightens and you don't get the option to not make decisions anymore. You might stave that off for a season, but at some point, the forces of life demand that you start making choices. And that's a bad place to be when you have to start making them. And scripture is very keenly aware of this. The Bible shines a great light on this decision-making distortion. James calls it unstable, right? It's an unstable way of living contrary to the gospel. We have these ideas in the Bible where the idea of being like your yes being yes or your no being no, the idea that you're not making irresponsible or careless decisions, but you're making thoughtful, God-honoring decisions. These things, when we live in the darkness, they hurt the person who practices that. They hurt the name of Jesus. They hurt the kingdom of God. They hurt everything. Paul takes it a step further in Romans. We have actually taught on this principle. He reminds us that even if we do make a decision, let's just say you, you're not, the fear of missing out isn't your thing. You make decisions, and then you kind of wonder, did I make the right one? If, even if you make a mistake in a decision, right? And we all will. None of us make perfect decisions. God promises something in the, this in us, that he'll use that for his glory and our good. That doesn't give us a freedom to be negligent, but it just says that even in our errors, God can make good out of that. If you need proof of that, look to the cross. The error of sin is made good. Not that sin is good, but it's made good because Jesus dies for us. There is nothing God cannot redeem in your life. And that's why we should be confident in living it, in living life. Not arrogant, but confident. So you see the benefit of living in the light with our decisions. I use one example today or any other area of the Christian life is that it neuters the effects, the negative effects of the lies of the darkness. And that's what the darkness is. It's a distortion of truth. You, you erect a different image in your head about what's going on because it's not lit up by the truth of Jesus' cross. The cross and the light of God light up the areas of our lives that are out of sync with his. And for those of us wanting to pursue Jesus, we should want illumination in those areas. This way of living leads me to the second cross truth that I want to share with you this morning. It's important that we understand the difference between the darkness and the light. And that we see in a very real way the, the, the stresses that can come about in our lives when we live in the darkness as opposed to the light. Very important. That's sort of the defensive strategy for the morning. But I want to leave you with some offense before we leave this place. If you want to live in the light, and this is the assumption I have today, right? We all want to live in the light of the cross. If that's what we want, then we have to know what the light is and challenge the darkness with it. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 9 through 11. If you want to know what Paul's getting at in Philippians 3 when he says, I want to be like Jesus in his death, 
I want to suffer. I want, I want to suffer like Jesus. I want to be a part of these things. This is a place where he, he's lighting, God's lighting up things in his life that are darkened in other people's minds. What sane person would say, I want to be like Jesus even in suffering? No sane person would say that. But when you start to know Jesus in ways that are, that are powerful and meaningful, you start to be okay with that stuff for the causes of his kingdom and the love of your neighbor. That's what I mean. That gets lit up in your head, and it creates a metamorphosis. It changes you from the inside out. Your behavior, your ta- habitat, everything changes. You live differently because of it. You start challenging the darkness with the light. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 9 through 11. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of the darkness, no matter what they are, but rather expose them. Let Jesus' light light them up in your heart. Now, the best definition we have of the light comes from the light. You English majors are going to be like, Anthony, you cannot define a word by using a word. But I'm telling you, Jesus did it, so I'm rolling with him this morning. In John 8, 12, Jesus says this. uh, Excuse me, John says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Paul's talking about, you might say a thing, but a person that creates a way of living. The light is a thing. But in the Christian world, the light is Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. And you Bible scholars will likely know Jesus made this light claim while teaching at the Jewish Festival of Tabernacles, a festival meant to remind Israel of how God faithfully led them through the darkness they faced in the wilderness after they were delivered from Egyptian slavery during the Exodus. So what you have here in in John 8, Jesus is constantly lighting up certain things for Israel to see. He's, re, he's reminding them of who God is, who he is. He's creating light, 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 light. And then, boom, he goes to the cross. The Gospel of John, which I taught through years ago here, is sort of like a wave. And the wave gets bigger each chapter. And eventually, Jesus says, I'm on the cross. And so he gives, he gives this teaching here to symbolize this light. Every day, they're at the Festival of Lights, and he is saying, I am the light. And at this festival, every day, there was a daily ceremonial lighting of candelabras. And this is because in Jewish theology, light is a sign of salvation. It's a, it's a sign of God's goodness, of God's guidance and blessing towards his people. It's a spiritual real, uh, uh, equivalent of light for us. Turn the lights on, you know where to walk. The same idea was present in how Israel viewed God. So this light ceremony was a central point of the festival. And it's literally under these lights that Jesus is teaching this passage in John. While, while the, the light is lighting up the darkness, Jesus says, hey, listen, uh, this light is me. He starts reminding them of how God has been faithful to them in the past through, through his light. And in particular, the Exodus story. So if you're not familiar with Exodus, the Exodus story, let me explain. I'll be super brief here. While God's people are wandering in the wilderness, right? They get redeemed out of Egypt. Slavery is gone. They're freed in God. God's guiding them through the wilderness, a pretty barren, desolate place, a place with lots of dangers, lots of places to lose your life. God provides them a means to know where to go. By day, God protects his people by guiding them with his presence through, uh, anybody remember? One person was like, cloud? <laughs> yes, it was a cloud. He didn't have Instagram back then. Uh, it was a cloud. And at night, he, he guides them by a pillar of fire. And somebody else yelled that out, okay? So you have these two things. During the day, God provides a way. During the night, he provides literal light. And every day, God's light protects his people from the dangers of a world filled with darkness that seeks to destroy them. It's a, it's a ravaging wilderness, and it is the, the light of God that, that gets them to safety. And it's during this ceremony, while that event was on the hearts of God's people, 
that Jesus adamantly declares, I'm now the promised light. Listen, he's saying, you guys marvel at how God led you to the wilderness, to, to the promised land. That's the story of the Exodus. But he said, I want to take you to a different promised land. I want you to take the light you experienced from my Father in heaven in the Old Testament, and I want you to look at the light in me now and follow me to the cross. Because if you end up there, you'll, you'll get a promised land you can't even imagine. You have an eternity with my Father in heaven and a presence on earth and in, in you forever. My spirit will dwell in you until, until Jesus, until my, God, until my Father brings you home. He's t- it's a different exodus, if you will. This exodus once and for all redeems us from sin. And so this, is, this promise is a rich one. The promise to li- even the ability to live in the light that Paul gives us, man, that is rooted in some deep theology of the cross. The promise is a rich and meaningful one, especially if you've ever found yourself lost in the darkness of life, which we all have, let's just be honest. This is a light truth that really matters because in our modern lives, just like the ancient wilderness, it can be a really tough place to get through. Life is not always easy. We're going to talk a little bit about this next week. The cross shows us God cares. At times, life is plagued with hardship and suffering. All of us recall periods where, where problems were just unrelenting. Maybe you're in one of those now. That right, right when you thought, oh man, the season of trial's over, boom, here comes another one. Something else happens, and over time, it starts to crush your spirits. Maybe it's a health issue, a financial issue, a family issue, job problems, uncertainty in what tomorrow holds for you. Maybe you're like, I wish there was an option. If this was multiple choice, it was like option E, all of the above. Maybe that hits you in one month. The weight of these issues can be crushing. They really can. They start to, to power out the light is what happens. They start to make us uncertain about the future. They start to distort reality. They can make us want to give up. They can make us want to trade abundant living for a life of meager survival. They can cause us to forget that even though life is falling apart, God is still God. And even though the wilderness is great, he's still guiding us. It's a modern-day equivalent, our struggles and trials, of aimlessly walking in the dark wilderness of life without a guide to get you through. And for others, maybe just kind of piggybacking what I said a few moments ago, maybe you're in the wilderness because you have decisions ahead of you and you just don't know what to do. You've got like too much light in front of you. You don't even know where to go in life. And as a result, what happens is you start pushing these things off. It's a decisional paralysis. You're so afraid to make the wrong move that you don't make any move. And you enter what I like to call the cul-de-sac of life. It's a, it's a neat loop. But the scenery gets old after a while. And the world moves on without you. The fear of choosing the wrong thing is what rules your heart. Not the, the confidence in your God to make good on a promise that he's going to get you in life no matter where you are. Even if you make a wrong choice. He's giving God grace in our failure. So this type of darkness causes you and I to lose sleep at night. You start asking these questions, right? You, know, you wake up at 3 in the morning or whatever your equivalent of this story is. What degree should I choose? Where should I live? What job should I take? What do I do with my money? Should I get involved with this church? Yes, you should. Should I marry this person? Not sure. Let's talk about that. What do I do about my kids? Right? All these questions come up. That pit, the, the pit in your stomach is kind of violent at night. You're up. You're losing sleep. And I just want to tell you, if you are a Christian, whether you have this in small doses or large doses, if you're a Christian and you exhibit this restlessness, I'm not saying we don't have restless periods, but I'm saying if you are restless, then you're living in the darkness. And God does not want you to remain there. Consequently, what happens is you will likely spend the rest of your life trying to figure out exactly what tomorrow will hold. You will try to hold a bunch of flashlights in your life to light the way, but you cannot light the way the way God can. It's impossible to own that burden on yourself. And what will most likely happen is, is in our feeble attempts of lighting up the future, 
we're going to miss the wonderful opportunities God gives us today to love him and serve others. Let his light direct you. Let his light be a light in you. That's what Paul teaches us. So you see, to live in the light of Jesus' cross means we can now live in and experience the promises of Christ's life in all areas of life. His light and life redefine us. They change us. It means we can live in a, with a real confidence and peace in this life. But you have to know that living in the light is not simply a magic trick. I, I wish it was as easy as flicking on our, our, our bathroom switch, you know, the, the outlets we have in the house where we just pop these switches and lights start coming on. That's not necessarily how this works with the Lord. It is a daily discipline you have to train your heart to believe. And the discipline we've been talking about over this past month is by looking to the great promises of Jesus on the cross. The way you throw the light switch is to identify the darkness. I'm uncertain in life. And to ask God to flip the cross on for you. How does the cross provide a pathway for me to move out of my uncertainty? How does it create the bridge from darkness to light? And so Paul's point in all of this, no matter what it is we're dealing with, is you have to know what the light is. And then you have to challenge it with the dark. Uh, you, have, you have to challenge the darkness with it every day. You have to know what the darkness is and let Jesus' light overshadow it, overpower it. Because part of the way you grow as a Christian, I grow as a Christian, is by embracing the fact that in every one of us exists two warring natures. One, the cross has already and utterly defeated. Easter is the celebration of a past event. The stuff we're talking about today has already been dealt with. This is why we say he is risen. It's happened already. He is victorious. It's overcome. The truth is that the warring nature of the flesh and our sin, right? The cross has defeated this already. Jesus took care of that. But as you know, that stuff has a real talent in resurfing itself at the most inopportune times of our lives. The darkness and sin, they are always trying to peek their head through. The other pathway, the other, other uh, competition system, if you will, is the victorious power of Christ's light. And the tension that we live in here as Christians in this kind of already but not yet stage, Jesus has redeemed us, but we still wrestle with sin, right? Jesus is making all things right, but things are not all right yet, perfectly right. What happens here is we're caught in this, this intermediate season between the era of the church and Jesus is coming back. I can't wait for the day we're in heaven and we're not talking about the resurrection anymore. We're talking about a second coming and this is all over. It's going to be a wonderful day. But until then, God calls us to live victoriously right now. By the sweat of our brow and the grace of God's hand, we have been called to dwell in the fact that the light is one. And so if you want to truly experience a spiritual metamorphosis to the light, we must commit the rest of our lives to pursuing the fruit of the light in our own lives and in our world. We've got to receive the love of Jesus and spread it to people. We have to know that the light comes, or with the light comes this amazing desire to grow more deeply into the image of the one who is the light. You just want to become light, you'll become like a new age crystal worshiper. No offense to that. But what I'm saying is all of these ideas are kind of abstract. This is what de delineates Christianity from a lot of the spiritualities of the world. The light is not just light. The light is a person. And the way you light up the darkness in your life is by letting Jesus' character and nature and being and goodness light up all of those areas of your life. That's what it means to come to the light and grow in it. That's why the cross matters. And so today, we'll wrap up here. We've talked a lot about the light of Christ overcoming the darkness. And as we close, it's important to know the way we experience the dawning of Christ's light in our lives can look very different. You're not going to find a ton of like uh, hardened descriptions. You'll find descriptions in the Bible, but you're never going to find like, this is the way the light breaks through in your life. You won't. And that is because the way we come to the light often looks very different. Some of you 
might have had a, like a pretty radical conversion. This was my story. Like, like you were just in the darkness and then bam, sun popped up one day. You're in Jesus. For others of you, it might have been like a very slow but gradual illumination. The, you know, the sun comes and goes in our lives. The way things get lit up can look very different. And so in passages like this, I don't think Paul is as concerned with what the light is doing in our life. He's concerned at this junction with whether or not the light is in our life. If that is in order, then, then it's very fair to say that the way the light is working in our life will be in, in good standings with God. So here we're talking about, has the light broken through? Because of this, you have to know, Scripture is not concerned with you right now. Let me just be very clear. Not as much as, as whether or not the light is working in a certain way, but I want to ask you the question this morning, is the light in you? That's how you'll answer the second question. And this is how we will truly wrap up this morning. I want to give you some meditation points that you can review and pray through over communion. This is a time for you to think about what Jesus has done for you and act in light of that. And as we take communion, there will be three questions behind me, or three, three, three questions, kind of self-diagnostic questions. How do you know you're living in the light? Well, I'd like you to think about these. They'll be behind me now and then again behind me as we take to the table. For question one, are your eyes open to spiritual realities in Jesus today in a way they weren't yesterday? Simply put, do you see in your life today areas that are lit up that were not lit up in the past? Are you generous today and you weren't generous? Did you used to be an incredibly angry person, but you, you know, God's challenging you now in your anger? Whatever it looks like, can you see light in areas based on who Jesus is and what he wants you to be in him? Second question, is there a desire to want to know and grow in God's truth through his word, prayer, and Christian relationships? Keep in mind, these questions are an ecosystem. So you might say, well, how do I know what Jesus wants me to be like? Uh, well, you answer the second question. He'll tell you that in his word. He'll reveal that to you as you pray. And as you deal with people, men and women who love you and Jesus, they'll share this with you too, as well as you'll have the platform to share it with them. Do you have a desire to know the light? That's what I'm saying here. In the, in the, with the tools and the methods he's given us. And then lastly, I would say, very practically, in your relationships, are you a person known for draining light from others because the darkness drains you? Or are you a light bearer, leading others to the light and life of Christ? Do you light the candelabra like Jesus did? Or are you the person like you know, tss, tss, putting them all out when people are around you? No matter where you find your light today, hear me. These questions are not designed to make you feel bad or guilty. We all, I'm sure, are going to be answering yes and no in all these categories. The, the point of this is to ask whether or not, uh, no matter where you find yourself, whether your light is brightly burning, dimly lit, or totally extinguished, you have to know that Jesus is the light of the world and he still loves you. The point of these questions in the cross is that God wants to call you out of this. He wants you to follow him with a humble and a sincere heart. And if you will trust in him and look to his cross, he will bathe you in the grace of his cross. He will do that. That's why we're going to celebrate Easter. He wants you lit up. He wants to guide your life and he wants to be your, your light. He wants to be your hope and peace. So simply put, trust, believe, and obey this, this, this day. And if those are things you can't do, ask God to help you do those things. As we move into communion and response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his light? And what is it that you will do about it as you leave this place this week and project your heart's attention towards the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for light and the fact that you are a good God who is generous with it. Thank you, Father, that you're a God who lit up our world and our lives when, when we were steeped in darkness. In fact, there are places in Scripture where we learn that we desired the darkness. We wanted to dwell in it. We, we sought it above all else. And because of your goodness and your grace for us, you, you were too good to us. 
And you continue to shine your light on that. And so I'm thankful, Father, that your never-ending patience, your relentlessness to love and pursue us, God, is just something that is part of who you are. It, it is a reality. It shows us that you love us. And so I pray, Father, that we would experience that love, that we would reciprocate it towards you and show it to others. And may this time we have now at the communion table just be another waypoint in our time of worship this morning that helps us to reorient our heart around you. May we give thanks for what we are about to celebrate. It is done in remembrance of your death for us, but it is your death and what we will talk about now for these next moments that leads to our life. Bless all of this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.